the glassy sea and the plaguey vials. And I'm pretty sure you can all see where that's coming from with our, our reading just then. Um, just before I do mention that, something you may have spotted, you may not have spotted, just happened in the last ooh, half hour or hour or so. Um, United Kingdom has been conducting what looks like freedom of navigation operations in the Black Sea. Um, uh, so much the same way as the United States of America does in the South China Sea to kind of make a point to the Chinese that you don't actually own all the sea, the British have been doing in the Black Sea. Uh, and it looks from uh, sort of satellite imagery that's coming out and the, the British own sort of GPS positioning record of where the ships went, that they actually slipped inside um, Russian territory, um, which is within a, uh, it's defined as a 12K sort of boundary around the coastline of Russian territory um, is Russian sea, if that makes sense. So if you go 12K out from the beach, um, that's defined as being Russian sea. Uh, they went within that territory in Crimea, Crimea, which is in the Black Sea. Um, and the Russians have just announced that they uh, shot weapons and dropped bombs in the wake of the Russian battleship. Um, so some interesting stuff kicking off in the Black Sea at the moment. So maybe have a look at that when you get home. Um, whether it comes to anything or not is kind of irrelevant because what we're seeing is um, that sort of stiffening up of the sides in the world, of the relationships. Britain is becoming increasingly anti-Russia, um, as is Australia, as is uh, Canada and New Zealand, um, and much of the rest of the world is heading the other direction, as we would expect um, to see if we were living in the time of the end. And of course, we are living in the time of the end. Uh, and I guess in a way, that's what we're going to consider tonight. Revelation chapter 14 was our last chapter uh, several months ago now. Um, Hopefully you recall that chapter, a really exciting chapter. We saw the lamb upon Mount Zion, the establishment of the kingdom itself, 144,000 there. Uh, and we also saw the mid-heaven gospel proclamation as um, the saints went out throughout the whole world to warn the world that they must now uh, get rid of Catholicism and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also saw... The, the promise that the saints would enter into their rest. Um, uh, John heard a voice in heaven saying, to the dead, blessed are the dead, which die in the Lord from this point forward because at a certain point in time, they will rest from their labours, their efforts to, to uh, mould the world. And then we saw the harvest of the earth and the harvest of the grapes. Um, so one, the harvest of the earth spoke of Armageddon, the harvest of the grapes, speaking of the war that comes after Armageddon. We saw that um, the symbology seems to indicate that that second conflict, that second world war will be much more long lasting than Armageddon itself. Uh, and the symbology there at the end of Revelation chapter 14, 1,600 furlongs, Brother Thomas suggests that that's as much as 40 years. So now we're jumping into chapter 15. Uh, and if you want chapter 15 in one line, it is this. It's the precursor to 
Tim's waving at me, but I'm not sure what he's waving and why he's waving. Do I want a drink? I've got some up here. Tilt the mic down towards me. Okay, no worries. We can do that, I think. Does that make you happier? Excellent. Okay, good. Thank you for that, Tim. Um, I wasn't sure what he was saying. It did look like he was offering me a drink. So I was feeling a bit enthusiastic in case he had something better up the back than I've got up the front. But such is life. Um, all right. So in one line, this chapter is the introduction to the vials. Fundamentally, the Lord is telling John and saying, here it is. Here are the vials. These are the big ones. This, this is the end. This is the big ticket item. Um, and, and we'll cover off why we said that later on. But in a one-line summary, these are the vials. These are the big ones. Uh, and in diving into the vials, we're going back in time again. And you'll notice we've done this again and again and again throughout the study of Revelation. We, fly, we sort of get to a certain point and then we rush back in time. Uh, and, and it makes sense because we said ages ago that Revelation is a telescoping prophecy, isn't it? We start out with the seals and the seventh seal contains the trumpets. And so by the time we get to the seventh end of the seventh seal and the spirit says, hey, now I'm going to tell you about seven trumpets, we have to go flooding back all the way to the beginning of the seventh trumpet, to uh, seventh seal, pardon me, to capture all the seven, let me say that again because I'm getting back to front, we have to go flooding all the way back to the beginning of the seventh seal in order to capture all those seven trumpets. And then we get through the seven trumpets and we get to the end of the seventh trumpet and the kingdom is established and then Christ says, all right, but now we need to go back to the beginning of the seventh trumpet to capture all the detail of the seven vials which are embedded in that trumpet. So as we get to the end of each of these phases, seals, trumpets, and even vials, we have to sort of then go back to the beginning of the seventh of these to get the space to occupy for that for the sort of unfolding of greater detail that comes as we telescope out. Did that make any sense at all? Um, nod your head if it didn't. Give me a sort of sad and worried look if it didn't. Lots of sad and worried looks, one or two people nodding. I'm going to assume that it doesn't matter enough anyway and, and keep moving forward. Um, we'll talk about that. Um, we'll talk about that more over supper if you'd like. Um, but here in in um, Revelation chapter 15, we are rushing back and we're rushing back. If you go to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, this is where we're kind of going back to because in Revelation chapter 11, verse 14, the second woe is passed, the second woe trumpet, which you will recall is the sixth of the seven trumpets. Verse 15 the third woe, the seventh angel trumpet is going to sound. And in that trumpet, there are great sounds in heaven, um, great voices in heaven. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of the Lord and his Christ. He reigns forever and ever. The four and 20 elders which sit before God fall on their faces. They worship and they sing a beautiful song. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, because you art and wast and art to come. You've taken to thee thy great power. The nations were angry. Thy wrath has come. The time of the dead, the servants, the prophets, and, and the kingdom is, is blowing in. And then 
he rushes back and he starts to explain how that's going to happen. And so Revelation chapter 12 and 13 and even chapter 14 describes how the, the kingdom is going to be brought in and the experience of the saints in the progress towards the kingdom. And so now when we come to the vials, we're doing the same thing again. We're going back. We're going back in chapter 15 into the end of that seventh trumpet. Um, and we're, we're going to proceed forwards from there. And here in chapter 15, we are, we, we're basically going to have from here on in one long prophecy. So it's one big kind of block of vision, if you like. And you notice all the way through chapter 15, 16, 17, and even in chapter 21, we're still talking about the seven angels, the seven angels who carry the vials, the seven vile angels. Revelation 21 verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come. So all the way through the narrator of um, the last section of Revelation is going to be one of these angels with the vials. So from here on in, we're kind of in the final run into the kingdom at the end of Revelation. Now, breaking down Revelation chapter 15, and once again, the same sad joke I had up on the screen last time I talked about a breakdown. Um, uh, probably no one's getting it, but I, it amused me, so I'll put it up. Um, really two pieces to Revelation chapter 15. Um, what has happened, and we'll talk about what has happened in a minute, and then how it happened. So what has happened is the vials are poured out and the kingdom is established. That's verse 1 to 4. And then chapter, uh, from verse 5 onwards, all the way through chapter 16 and beyond, we're talking now about the detail of how those vials were poured out and what happened step by step as those vials were poured out on the earth. And so what this is, is this is a description of the pouring out of these last vials taken from the vantage point of the kingdom. And again, I'll explain why I'm saying it's from the vantage point of the kingdom as we go. So we start in Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. He saw another sign. John sees another sign in heaven. He saw one back in chapter 13 where he saw this woman who was pregnant, you know, the sun on her head, the moon at her feet, and so on, so on, so on. That was a sign in heaven. He saw, well, he's seen a number of signs in heaven. There was, there was a woman there was the great red dragon. There was another beast. All of these were signs that he saw. But this one, this one's a little bit different. Because this one is great and marvelous. There are no other signs in Revelation that are great and marvelous. This one's different. It's a contrast, if you like. Whereas the previous signs have been signs that he saw that were um, describing the, the preeminence and the growth of the, the Catholic system and the king of men as it stood astride the globe, this is a contrast. This is great and it's wonderful for the saints because this one is the opposite. It's not an apostate woman. It's not a great red dragon. It's not some horrendous beast. It's not unclean frogs. This one is the 
opposite of all those things. And so it's a great and a marvelous sign that John sees. And it's the only one because it's the only one that matters. And we'll see what that is in a moment. So we say to ourselves, why is it so great and marvelous? Well, it's great and marvelous because it speaks. Well, if you come to verse three, it says, they, we'll talk about who in a bit, sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous, same phrase, great and marvelous are your works. Now, that phrase, we're going to talk about this more, um, works speaks of the end result, the thing achieved, the final outcome, not the process, the final outcome. And so great and marvelous is the final outcome, the result. Now, um, I want us to just briefly look at verse three and we will come back. I'm sorry, this is a little bit scattered, but um, there's two words in verse three that are kind of useful for us to understand. The first one we've looked at his works, great and marvelous are your works. And then he says, just and true are your ways. And these are two slightly different ideas. The work is the final outcome, the thing done. That's what's great and marvelous. And the ways is the journey. It's, it's the process. It's the, the approach by which we get there. In the Hebrew, this word is direct or Derek, for those of you who say Hebrew better than me. Um, and it just means the road, the journey, uh, the highway, if you like. Uh, these, this idea of ways, and which is the journey, and deeds, the outcome, shows up in Psalm 103. Uh, and you'll see immediately a connection. We're talking about Moses here in Revelation chapter 15. God made known his ways, the journey unto Moses and his acts, the outcome unto the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, we won't turn it up. God says, um, Moses said, he, Yahweh, is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. The God of truth without iniquity, just and right is he. Now, this is where this phrase comes from. Just and true are your ways. Deuteronomy 32 says God's ways are judgment. They are just and right. Uh, here's another passage that picks up the same ideas. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways are judgment. And those that walk in pride, he will be able to base. Now, this was said immediately after Nebuchadnezzar got, his, got his, his marbles back. Remember, God punished Nebuchadnezzar. He went crazy. He was out there like a ravening beast, symbolic of the nations of this earth, until God gave him back his mental faculties, his spiritual compass, if you like, and all of a sudden, he was back on the throne before he knew what had happened. But now he had an appreciation of Yahweh Almighty. And this man is symbolic of the crazed nations 
as they are today and what they will become in the future when they have the wisdom that once they were crazed, but God, his works are truth and his ways are judgment. So I know we're getting a bit circuitous here, but uh, if you come across to uh, Revelation 16 and verse 5, you'll see the same phrase almost show up yet again. I heard the angel of the water say, you are righteous, O Lord, you art and wast and shalt be because you have judged thus. Um, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. Thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another angel out of the altar say, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. That's exactly the same phrase. So putting all this together, what we're seeing is this, that God's ways in the context of Revelation chapter 15 are the judgments he's going to meet out. That's the journey. That's the path, the process. God's ways are just and true, says Revelation 15 verse 3. And Deuteronomy 32 and Revelation 15 verse 7 say, the things that are true and just, his ways are judgment. So judgment is the way we're going to get there. So what is the works, the destination and the outcome? What's the kingdom of God? It's the establishment of God's kingdom. So when they sing this song and they say, Great and marvelous are your works. That's the end result. Just and true is the journey. What it's saying is great and marvelous will be the establishment of the kingdom of God because it will be achieved through the journey of just and true judgments. Now, I know that's a lot of quotes strung together in a kind of haphazard fashion, which we haven't put up on the screen. But hopefully what you take out of this is that those two phrases, works and ways, speak of outcome and journey, way to get there. One of them, the journey is the judgments that we're reading about, the vials. They are the way. And the, the work is the kingdom. Which, of course, brings us back to verse 1. Great and marvellous is the work, the outcome, the establishment of the kingdom of God. And that will be done through the way, seven angels having seven last plagues. And in these seven last plagues is filled up the wrath of God. Now, here's every translation I had on my computer. And all of them are sort of heading in the same direction. It's saying to us, these vials exhaust God's wrath. When the vials are done, God is no longer angry with the world because it is done. It is finished. This is the end of what Revelation is about. God's warfare with the kingdom of men. So that's why this passage, this section is so important. This is the, the end game. We're coming into the conclusion now. He says, because in these, in the vials is completed, is filled up, is finished, is perfected, the anger of God. That word plagues is translated elsewhere, stripes or calamities or punishments. So plagues is probably the wrong word. It, uh, yes, of course, 
it, it's going to be worked out in plagues much the same as Egypt experienced. But the core of that word is it's talking about the punishments, the stripes, the floggings, if you like, of the nations. And, and this sign that John says is in heaven. This idea is picked up from Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel chapter 7, for those of you who remember, it's the chapter in which we've got the beasts coming up out of the sea. And there's one last beast, which is Daniel can't describe it. It's got a horn that speaks. But at the end of that chapter, it says, the judgment shall sit. The judgment. That Bethesda judgment will sit and they will take away his, that is the beast, to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the king and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. The point of this passage is this that everything under is given. By definition, the saints are in heaven. Everything is under them. They are in, as it were, ruling over all the dominions at the point at which the kingdom of the beast is taken away. And that's exactly what I was here to do. So we're looking at a period of time in which the saints are enthroned in heaven. All right. So we read in verse 2. And by the way, if there's two, two messages, please yell out. Or, um, please never say that whatever your preference is. Um, uh, and, and I'll go over it or not go over it again, as the case may be. So we come to verse 2, and we're reading about the sea. And this is in my Bible in your passage because saw as it was a sea of glass with fire. So the sea, we're familiar with the, the, um, the symbology. Um, it's come up a number of times in Revelation. We, we saw it in chapter 13, the beast rising out of the sea. We'll see it again in chapter where it's actually explained to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord says that um, Charlotte sits upon the many waters and he says, um, the angel, one of the seven five, says to John, waters that you saw, peoples and multitudes and, and nations and languages. So the, the sea represents nations, particularly those nations with whom the prophecy has. In the end, that's all nations. So we've got of this, this glassy sea mingled with fire. It's, it's this, this idea of mingled with fire. What, what's going on there? Well, we, we've this troubled sea. And, and it, the, the picture is almost as if its waves are lashed by fire and brimstone. Um, but the phrase here in Revelation chapter 2 is past tense. 
It's a sea that had been fiery, had been lashed with fire and brimstone, but is now glassy. Saying this is a sea that has both fire in it, but is also glassy. It's saying it's a sea that was fiery, now become glassy. Uh, as the passage, not so much a sea, but a lake of fire and brimstone, the same sort of idea, idea of, of a body of water in which there is judgment, on, on which wrath is poured. What does that speak? Well, it speaks of the nations being judged. The fire is the nations when God pours out his wrath and his judgment upon them. And we've seen that already in our studies in Revelation. If you come back to Revelation chapter 8 uh, and verse 8, it says, the second angel sounds, and as it were, a burn with cast to the sea. So there are other occasions where the sea is described as having fire in it or being poured, uh, having brimstone put in. So when we read this symbol, it's speaking to us of, of turbulent and troubled, but just not just turbulent as it normally is, but, but very troubled. There's, there's sort of, it's almost like everything's going wrong at the same moment. If you can imagine, and this is a crazy scenario, but just imagine a world which at one and the same time, the economy was on the verge of collapsing, the environment turmoil, there were dictators on the rise everywhere, and there's a pandemic sweeping the globe. The kind of thing I'm talking about. Really messed up world in which it appears that God is judging it. Them that have gotten the victory over the beast. So the beast they've got victory over is the beast that has an image. You see that? Over his image. So the beast is the one that's got an image. What that tells us is that these are the people who had victory over the first beast, the beast of the sea, which existed all of the way up until the period of the image of the beast and beyond. In other words, these are all the people who had fought against all the beasts. So here's some people. They are on. They're standing, as it were, by a sea that had been glass, uh, had been fiery, but is now glassy. And they have already had victory over all of the beast history, if you like. That's kind of what we're being told here. That that victory is now past, and they they stand on or beside this sea and they've got harps of God. And I don't know about you, but I feel like that's one of the weirdest things to say. Um, the, these people have had victory and they happen to have, they've got chocolate bars. You know, it, it's almost as odd as that. Why say harps? What's the point? You know, every one of them is wearing blue trousers. It's, it's just a kind of strange statement. But of course, it's not. We know that the Lord knows exactly what he's talking about. And when you go back into the Old Testament and you look at harps, harps are the instrument that is connected with joy, with pure, unadulterated joy. So, you know, a drum can mean anything. You can have an upbeat drum beat that sort of moves you along. You can have a somber drum beat at a, at a funeral. You can have a martial drum beat. 
but to a Jew, the harp is joyful. You know, you, you'll know the passage, we hung the harps in the willow trees because we're grieving. You can't play a harp when you're sad. You just can't, according to a Jew. Um, uh, David says, um, then will I go unto the altar of God, unto my God, my exceeding joy, yea, upon the harp, I'll praise you, O God, my God. So it, it's the instrument of joyfulness. And so here we've got this community. They, they're in the heavenlies. They've won the great victory. The sea is now glassy, and they're just so full of gladness and joy that they pull out the most joyful instrument there is, the harp. And they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Sing or the, actually in the Greek, the word here is literally the ode of Moses, which I quite enjoyed the use of that phrase, the ode of Moses. So anyone know where's the ode of Moses? Exodus 15. Excellent. So let's go there. Exodus 15. There, there are actually two of them. Um, but we're only going to go to Exodus 15 for the sake of time tonight. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 is also an ode of Moses. But I think this one uh, is the one that was in the mind of, of the Messiah when he told John what to write. So, anybody, what's the context of Exodus chapter 15? They've just gone through the Red Sea. What was the context of just going through the Red Sea? Victory. Absolutely. Brilliant. And what had preceded the victory? Plagues, right? Plagues. In fact, many of the same plagues as we go through Revelation 16, we're going to see frogs, we're going to see painful sores. We're going to see darkness. We're going to see hail. The same imagery is going to come up again. We're going to see water turn to blood. And then, and then the people are led. The way of the kings of the east will be opened through the waters. And they will be led to victory. And so there's a, there's a great degree of symmetry here and similarity and, and just imagine the scene you're with the children of israel you're on the far side of the red sea wherever the crossing happened to be the sun is rising i like to picture the sun rising on the far side of the red sea and 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 the red sea is just shining and glistening and it's glassy absolutely glassy as far as the eye can see and they're looking back and of the Egyptians, there's no sign apart from the occasional bobbing, floating Egyptian nudging up against the shore. That, that sea is glassy. And yet, just hours ago, it was absolutely the opposite. The most amazing, violent catastrophe you can imagine. As they, as they came to walk into that sea, it says, you know, obviously it was nighttime. There's that great swirling pillar of cloudy fire going way, way up into the sky. It's raining cats and dogs. There's a howling wind blowing and the ground is shaking. There, are, there were earthquakes again and again and again. The most terrifying 
thing. And just over there is the most powerful army in the world. And you're being told, don't worry about that. Just walk into this yawning chasm of water, stories high, little, little shark poking his head through, going, what's going on here? And they walked down into that chasm, the valley of death, to escape certain death. One of the Psalms says that your footsteps were there. Can you imagine that? I, I don't know whether it's literal or poetic, but the very thought that maybe as they walked along, they could see just these footsteps appearing in the, in the damp sand in front of them as the angel led them through. And then down came those waves of water as they emerged on the far side, smashing down a great catastrophe. And they'd, there'd been plagues, there'd been death, and they had now been saved by water, those that gained the victory over the Egyptian beast. And here he is, and he's singing, he's singing this wonderful song. And Revelation chapter 15 said, not just that this was the song of Moses, but this was the song of Moses, the servant of God. That's not a common phrase, believe it or not. It's not said by God of Moses very often, but here's the first time. Chapter 14, verse 31. And Israel saw the great work which the Yahweh did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared Yahweh and believed Yahweh and his servant Moses. It's the first time. It's called the servant of God in this context. And then Moses sang. And the children of Israel, this song, I will sing unto Yahweh, for God triumphed gloriously over the sea. The enemy is thrown into the sea. 15 verse 7, uh, chapter 15 verse 7, in your greatness and your excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against your wrath. What does it say in Revelation 15? In them is the wrath of God filled up. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. Echoes of Revelation chapter 14 there. Uh, burned up. Chapter, uh, verse 17, then shalt thou bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. This is long, long before David went to Zion. Somehow Moses here knows not just that there is the place where Yahweh will put his name, but it's a mountain. And we've just read in Revelation chapter 14 of that mountain, Mount Zion, on which the 144,000 will be, and they will be planted in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for thee to dwell, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. Yahweh will reign for, in the Hebrew, the Olam and the Ad. In other words, the millennium and even beyond that. And in Revelation chapter 15, it'll say, God, he reigns forever and ever. Verse 18, he reigns forever and ever. And, and who were the 144,000? It was the 12 tribes of Israel, wasn't it? They're specifically listed. 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from the other tribe. This, this, this is what... Jesus was thinking of this victory, this great victory over the prison house of Egypt, the inky black slave land of Egypt and over certain death in the sea. 
it's it's perfect um, basis for the song of the saints because we'll be singing of the same thing. I, I don't know about you, but a lot of my week, I feel like this place is a prison house. And more and more as I grow older, I see the need to be rescued from, well, sometimes it feels, it's dramatic, I know, but it does feel a bit like a living death. And yet we will be saved. We have to trust that and, and we'll sing this song. And it's not just the song of Moses. It's the song of the Lamb. And again, there's, there's such appropriateness there because the Lamb had just saved them at this point in Exodus 15, hadn't it? The blood of the Lamb daubed, daubed on the lintel saved them, not just the Egyptians, them as well, from the angel of death overhead. They may well have said at that time that we're singing the Lamb's song as well as Moses' song. So this is a song. When we come back to Revelation 15, the song we're singing here is a song of, of rejoicing at our rescue from sin and death. These people, which we trust will be us in that day, they've got the right perspective. It's not a song of rejoicing, ha-ha, we've got to kill all the nasty people out there in the world, yippee. It's a song of rejoicing of our own salvation. We're so glad that no longer are we in the prison house of sin. We've been rescued through the sea and we're rejoicing that the sea is now glassy because were it not, it could consume us. We ourselves could be drowned in that sea. So they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And they sing of God's mighty works, the outcome, and God's mighty ways, the way, the journey in which he gets there. And they say, and this is a little, odd, a little bit of an odd phrase, they say, just and true are your ways, you king of saints, which the King James is just about the only version that says this. Almost every other version says something different. Amplified version, King Sovereign of Ages, ASV, Rotherham, RSV, RV, thou King of the Ages, the Aeon, in other words, the King of the Millennium. And then ESV, Weymouth, Jerusalem Bible, Moffat, NET, and many others say, O King of the Nations. So we've got three options. Is he being described here as the King of the Saints? That would be appropriate. Is he described as the king of the nations? Would be appropriate. Or is he king of the ages? Would be appropriate, which is correct. Well, we've got an answer and, and we can check because like everything in Revelation, this comes from an Old Testament context. So let's go there. Revelation 10. Uh, not Revelation 10, I lied. Sorry about that. Uh, Jeremiah 10. Slip of the tongue. It was really interesting as I was going through this because I was looking up lots and lots of Old Testament passages and trying to find those connections. And almost every time the connection was there, the same sort of language came up. The war against idolatry, the war against sin, the war, it's always in the context of, of a battle against something terrible. And the context of this song is, well, look at verse 7, or oh, verse 6. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Yahweh, 
Thou art great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear thee, O king of nations? For to thee doth it appertain for as much as all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like unto thee. This, I think, is almost certainly the foundation passage that this part of the song in Revelation is taken from. Uh, I've got up there on the screen so you can see side by side Revelation 10 and Revelation 15. And this is the only passage in the scripture that I can find that talks about a king of nations. There is one passage in the Psalms that talks about Christ being a or God being a governor over the nations. Governor, not king. Uh, and that's Psalm 22, incidentally. So at the conclusion of Psalm 22, um, God is described as a governor over the nations, but to be a king of the nations, the monarch of the nations, there is there's only one passage and and it has the same language. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Revelation 10. O king of the nations, who will not fear? It's it's the same language here. Uh, for you alone are, are holy. There's none like you, says, says Jeremiah. And look at what it goes on to say in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God. He is an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations will not be able to abide his indignation. It's talking about the same stuff as Revelation chapter 15. And in fact, if we looked, had the time to look through uh, Jeremiah chapter 10 in detail, what we'd see is that this is an expose of the attitude of idolatry, the exact attitude of idolatry that led to the apostasy, that led to Catholicism, that led to the need for the vials to be poured out. And so it's an appropriate place for Jesus to pull this name of God, the king of the nations. He is the king of the nations who is worthy of fear because he will pour out his wrath on idolaters. So how does that help us? Well, it just means that uh, we don't have to be confused about which translation we should accept in terms of that title, it's the King of Nations. And, and it's so appropriate that now in Revelation chapter 15, with the glassy sea, nations still exist, that he becomes the king of all nations. He is the ruler over them all. Um, and his judgments on those nations are just and true. All nations will come and worship before him. So let's move on to the second section. And for those of you looking at the clock and thinking, oh, dear, here we go again. We'll be through this section reasonably quickly, I promise. Because after that, John sees something new. It's actually not new. It's the beginning of the detail section, if you like. We've just had this kind of high-level summary, which said it's these angels who've got these vials that had been used to fill up God's wrath. Uh, and now they're standing on a glassy sea, rejoicing, so glad that God has destroyed idolatry in the world. And so John now turns back and, and he's, he's back again at the beginning of the same vision. And, and he sees again the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony being opened up. And, and he's going to see these angels being given these vials. And the question is, who are these angels? Are they angel angels or are they, are they us? 
Well, we're not going to go through these passages, but you can look them up in your own time. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 8, the saints are those who are clad in pure and white linen. Um, we're also told, and we will look at this, uh, come across to Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Revelation 21, verse 9 says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of seven last plagues. So here's the same angels, one of them. And he's going to talk to John and he's going to say, look, I'll, I'll, I'll show you some stuff. You're going to show him a whole lot of stuff. Uh, come across to verse 17. This same angel is going to measure the wall of New Jerusalem. It's 144 cubits, a powerful number, according to the measure of a man. So it's, it's, it's this man's measuring. Which man? That is of the angel. In other words, he's saying New Jerusalem is exactly measurable by, well, this angel. It's in units. What are the units of measurement of New Jerusalem? Oh, X number of angels. It's not measured in meters or feet. This New Jerusalem is going to be measured in angels. It's, a, it's 144 cubits according to the angel's measurement. In other words, the angel was part of New Jerusalem. And, and then verse chapter 22, verse 1, and he, the same angel, showed me pure water. And, and the angel's going on and showing John all these important things. And we come down to verse 9 of chapter 22. And the same angel, one of the seven angels, said unto John, don't bow down to me, John. Stop that. Get up. I'm of your fellow servants, of your brethren, the prophets, and of them that keep the sayings of this book that says worship of God. It doesn't get any clearer than that. This is, this is not uh, one of God's messengers who created the world. It's one of us. It's someone who keeps the sayings of this particular book. It's one of the prophets. It's one of John's brethren. And this is one of the curly, yet beautiful things about Revelation, where God says things that are not yet as, a, as though they already were. And here's this angel that represents perhaps all of us saying to John, hey, this is, this is what you're going to do. But, well, that hasn't happened yet. Another example of this is in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Who do they say come to? Well, they say, come to the bride. The spirit and the bride say to the bride, come and get you to the kingdom as fast as you can. We're talking to ourselves. And that's what's happening here. This is, as it were, our better self saying, come on, get you to the kingdom. And so back in Revelation chapter 15, where we see these angels, it's us. But it's not. And this is, this is, I guess, what's a little bit head-twisting about this section. Because, well, we're not going to be the ones who literally pour out the vials, or at least not the first six. Because, well, I don't know about you, but the first six pretty much finish just at Armageddon. The first five, well, they happened when... Well, Tom and Napoleon, um, apart from Uncle Axel, I don't think anyone was alive there. 
So none of us were involved in, in, in that, that work in the time of Napoleon, right? None of us were there to pour out those vials. So why can we say that the angels that have these vials is us? Well, you see, what's being described here is it's almost like this is a gift from God. He's saying, I know you want this. I, I know you want this so badly. I know you want so badly for the final outpouring of my wrath to be done and for the kingdom of men to come to its knees and for the kingdom of God to be established. So I'll give it to you. It's yours. Even though it, we're not that yet there. It is very like the spirit and the bride saying come, but it is a bit head twisting. Um. Anyone got any questions on that? So what we're saying is the angels is symbolic representative of us, but it's, it's, it's us as we wish we were. It's us, you know, if we were standing at the time of the French Revolution and God said, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? We'd say, oh, give me those vials, please. I want to be the one pouring them out. But we're not there. But if we were, that's what we'd say. It's the, the spirit, the attitude of the saints here acting. And that's why uh, we're told a bunch of things about these people. We're told, for example, that they're clothed in, in linen, which we, we had a look at. We're also told this, that, that they've got, um, that they're girded with golden girdles. Now, that, that phrase comes from the Old Testament. Um, the literal Hebrew is it's not a golden girdle, it's a zone. Um, that, that's what the Greek is. The Greek word is zone there. Um, and, and it talks of, of being banded with what is gold a representation of? Anyone? Tried faith. Now, the angels in heaven, to the best of our knowledge, are not clad in tried faith because they are already perfected. It's us whose faith is tested and tried. Um, and, and white linen, what does that represent? Well, it's the righteousness of the saints. What righteousness? We have no righteousness of our own. Oh, that's right. We're given it at the kingdom age. It is the imputation of righteousness. God says, I will treat you as if you are righteous. I will cleanse your garments and give you perfect white linen. The angels, they're dressed in linen and they are perfect. These, this language doesn't apply to the angels. It applies to us and it speaks, it speaks of you and of me. And that's what makes this a little bit twisty. We're told that the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony opened. It's a bit like a, a tongue twister, isn't it? The temple of, temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. How can you have a temple of a tabernacle? Well, we kind of don't. That phrase there, uh, temple, um, it's, it speaks of, uh, well, the word there is naos, um, and it means the shrine, the dwelling place, or the inner sanctum. So it's saying the inner sanctum of the tabernacle of the testimony. Now, I was going to go through why it describes it as the tabernacle of the testimony in a little bit more. It speaks in brief of um, the tables of, uh, of, of the law of Moses, they were described as the testimony. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle is described as the tabernacle of the testimony because it contained the testimony. That was the tables with the law of Moses. Um, so why is this 
here? What is this inner shrine of the tent of the, the law of Moses all about? Well, it's, it's really talking about, again, a community, a community of faithful. It's talking about a time when um, there is this heavenly establishment of, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. Um, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven is opened. What this means is prior to this, it was closed. And we know from Hebrews that we're told about a time when the veil will be taken away. We'll be able to enter into the most holy freely. Well, that point is about to arrive. It's, it's, it's basically arrived in forethought. And, and the, the only thing yet to be done is the pouring out of the vials. The only thing left that remains to be done is the pouring out of the vials. And so as those doors swing open, that, that take away the, the, the veil before the, the inner sanctum of the holy place of the family of God, of the inner sanctum of the family of the people who live according to God's law, the only thing left to be done is the pouring out of these seven vials. And so God promptly gives the seven vials into the hands of these messengers who are going to go forth. Each of them is going to go forth with seven with the vials and pour them out. And then it says in verse eight that the temple was, was filled with smoke. What is that all about? Well, we know that smoke speaks of anger, of wrath, a number of other things. But in particular, this happened in the tabernacle and in the temple in times past. And when it was filled with smoke, it meant that the presence of God was there. And in fact, in, in many of these occasions, we're told that the priest could not go in because of the smoke. What's the point? The point is this. God is so angry that nobody can get in to plead for mercy upon the system that the vials are going to be poured on. So, yes, the inner sanctum is opening. People will be able to go in. The kings and priests of the age are just about to be ushered in to the kingdom in the mind of Christ. But the last thing to be done is these vials have to be poured out to destroy what is left of the evil system of the kingdom of men and to make sure that no one goes in and pleads the cause of Catholicism. The temple is filled with smoke to prevent the entry of any who might plead their cause. It's a little bit tricky. The first section, verses 1 to 4, it's just saying, look, here's a vision of, of everything that is to come. Vials are going to be poured out. Glassy sea is going to be glassy. It's not going to be fire anymore. And the saints are going to be absolutely thrilled. But before that happens, we've got to get to the point where the, the, the inner sanctum of the family of God can be opened up for us to go in. And in order for that to happen, the vials have to be poured out. And I know you saints want that oh so badly. So I'm giving it to you as it were. The spirit and the bride say, pour out those vials. And in order to make sure there will be no mercy upon the evil system of Catholicism and the kingdom of this age, the temple is, even though the doors are open, 
They're filled with smoke so that nobody can plead for mercy. And as we go through chapter 16, we'll see why that is just so appropriate. So in our next class, we start chapter 16. I am not even going to try attempt to do chapter 16 in a single night. And I think that would be actually morally wrong because this is our chapter. It's the one we're in. Um, and, and we need to talk about this one in a little bit more detail. But we'll leave it there for tonight.